Stephen, Joanne, uh, thank you for lighting our Advent candle this morning and getting us going into the second week of Advent. Advent, as you know, is these four weeks uh, that lead up to Christmas and that help us prepare for Christmas, that help us to, pre to prepare to celebrate the Advent or the arrival or the coming of the Messiah, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. Even as we look expectantly for Messiah, for Jesus to come again in glory at the consummation of all things when his kingdom will fully come as it has not before on earth as it is in heaven. And so much of this looking expectantly, waiting, watching, longing is hard. It is really hard. I have tried again this Advent thus far to live into this waiting, watching, longing and it is not easy business. We are conditioned to want things now. We have microwave ovens, fast food, same-day delivery, one-hour service, instant coffee. Even our shampoo now is combined, shampoo and conditioner in one, just so that we can speed up the process. We're not good at waiting. We innately want things sooner rather than later in our culture and our economy and technology all condition us in that direction. If you are ever out doing business, waiting in line, you know what I'm talking about, whether it's at the grocery store or at Michael's or wherever, the waiting, even in those little instances, sometimes can become unbearable. One of, my weakness, one of my joys is Target, but one of my weaknesses is also Target. And sometimes I think I can zip into Target on the way to work and knock out a quick errand, get it done quickly, and be on my way. I know where things are in Target, or I used to know where things are in Target. I can run in, I can sprint, I can blow by the slow people, I can get in line. They've got that self-serve line on each section, on each end now. So if all of the lines are full, I can jump in one of those self-serve zones, check myself out and rip out of there, no worries. I'm really good and gifted at discerning uh, which line will move the fastest, <laughs> how people uh, will move through the line, the kind of people, not just what they stack in their carts, but just scanning and being able to sort of go, oh, yeah, there, I can do this. So I grab what I want off of the shelf, pick a line, commit to a line, it doesn't move. But all of the other lines around me are inching forward. And anyone else confess to being a lane watcher? Okay, you sort of mark a person to go, her, him, I'm, that's my standard, my touchstone, how am I doing? So the other line doesn't uh, move, the other lines don't move, my stress level is going up. I've gotta get somewhere, I've gotta get to work, I've gotta pick up the kids, the other lines around me are moving and I find myself coveting other people's lines, which is one of the lost commandments among the 10. <laughs> Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's line. And then I start to actually think about making a move. The first step, right, in the 12 steps is to admit that you have a problem. And so to admit that I've got a problem, confess that I've got a problem, and think about whether or not I'm going to ditch my first choice, cut my losses, take the risk of getting back in another line with the hope that it will move more quickly, which I do. 
And then that line grinds to a halt. The new employee is actually a trainee who is lost at the cash register, calls for the manager who's nowhere to be found. And so I switch lines again, but that person, as it turns out, needs to go back and get something that they forgot. And the woman behind him has a gift card, she swears, somewhere at the bottom of her purse. And the person after her, as it turns out, wants to pay for all of her things in three different groups. And the third group she wants to pay for with a check. Who writes a check at Target, I want to know. And my head is literally about to explode in disbelief and in impatience. But somehow all of that is better than being put on hold when you call tech support and having to listen to their music and their sort of little embedded ads periodically and not knowing, not knowing, having any idea if the representative is actually ever going to pick up the phone. At least at Target, you can see how far ahead you have to go and if you're making progress. But on tech support, with no idea, you're just waiting blindly. That's kind of how it was for Israel as they waited for Messiah. But they were not waiting completely blindly because they had these signals or these markers or these prophetic words. Gladys talked a little about them at Time with Children. These ways of knowing what was coming, what God would do. And God described at different times along the way who would come, how he would come, when he would come, where he would come from, and what Messiah would be like, when Messiah would show up. Last Sunday morning, David Brickner, the executive director of Jews for Jesus, walked us through three different passages from the Old Testament, going all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 3, almost the very beginning of the Bible, and walked us through some of what he called Jewish Christmas cards that were indicators, that were promises to the Jewish people of and when Messiah would come. This morning we're going to look at what I'll call another Jewish Christmas card, this time from the book of Isaiah. Before I read, though, let's pray. God, as we hear the furnace spinning and the air moving, we invite your spirit to blow among us, in us, through us, around us, among us. Awaken us, arouse us, help us to be attentive to you, to you and to your word and to your will and to your way. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, let them be taken to heart. If my words in any way stray or deviate from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. A few numbers to start with. The Bible is made up of 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. It would be an oversimplification to say that the Old Testament is all about law and the New Testament is all about grace. But the themes of law in the Old Testament and grace in the New Testament are significant. Similarly, we could say that the Old Testament is all about judgment and the New Testament is all about mercy. That wouldn't be a perfect description or delineation either, but it is a way of seeing some of the major themes in the scriptures. 
Or the Old Testament is all about the promises of God, and the New Testament is all about the fulfillment of God. You kind of get the picture. There are these two different Testaments, and though they're woven together and connected in innumerable ways, they are also distinct. Well, coincidentally, the book of Isaiah from which we're going to be reading this morning is also 66 chapters long. The first 39 chapters, like 39 books in the Old Testament, 39 chapters describe God's judgment on the people of God, including the overthrow of the northern kingdom, Israel, by the Assyrians in the year 722 B.C. and the defeat of the southern kingdom, Judah, at the hands of the Babylonians, who then hauled off the best and brightest of Judah into exile in the year 587 B.C. But the next or the last 27 chapters of the book of Isaiah are really fundamentally different in so many ways than the first 39 books of the Bible. And they speak of Isaiah, and they speak of God's rescue plan, or of God's restoration, or of God reconciling his people, of not only bringing them back to his promised land, that Palestinian territory, but also of bringing them back to himself into relationship with them. We're going to start at the very first verse in that second chapter, or second section of Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, listen closely. This is the word of God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So be it. And so begins the great second section of the book of Isaiah, speaking of a new day, a new season, a new era for the people of God, something completely different than they had experienced for hundreds and hundreds of years. Comfort, comfort ye my people, says your God. Speak not harshly as the words had been before, but tenderly to Jerusalem. You may recognize these words as the first words that George Frederick Handel put into his probably best-known oratorio, Messiah. Comfort, comfort my people. That's where he starts. But the comfort of which God spoke through the prophet Isaiah was not about the comfort of comfortable shoes or comfortable pants or a comfortable chair or a comfortable situation or place or setting. But, rela- but rather relief, relief from grief, relief from sorrow, relief from suffering, relief from judgment, relief from condemnation. I read an article this week about the methods of torture used in the past by our CIA to draw out information from foreign assets for the sake of American interest. And one of the strategies, or all of the strategies of their many methods of torture, was to always keep those people uncomfortable, always uncomfortable, never allowed to be comfortable. A couple of weeks ago, I would say, comfort, comfort my people. 
After King Solomon's reign, Israel went through a terrible civil war. His kids couldn't get along. His ancestors couldn't get along. And so after King Saul, David, Solomon, Israel goes through this division, split, a civil war of sorts. A couple weeks ago, we watched with one of our high school kids who was able to get extra credit for watching the Civil War movie, a, war, a movie set during the Civil War. And I was reminded of how brutal, how ruthless Civil War can be. The worst kind of war. And it was the worst of wars for us as a nation. No one wins in one sense. Everyone loses brutal, ruthless, loss upon loss. And in some ways, Israel was in just such a place with Isaiah writing as a witness to it. And as the mouthpiece of God speaking judgment against Israel's sin and Judah's sin and their collective rebellion against God. Some have described the United States today as more polarized and divided than at any time since our civil war more than 150 years ago. There is angst on both sides. There is sin on both sides. There is division everywhere. Comfort, comfort my people. But it's not just as a nation that we are immersed in discomfort and dis-ease and depravity and debauchery and corruption and wickedness, immorality, pride and greed. It is also us as people. It's us as the church. It's us as a nation. It's us as neighbors. It's us as communities. It's us as individuals torn and tearing. Lonely, lost, angry, alienated from God, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and alienated from one another. Comfort, or another way of translating that word, console, comfort, comfort. Bring back together, be comforted. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. It's over, it's done with, it will be no more that her sin has been paid for. That her sin has been paid for because for hundreds of years Israel had lived in open rebellion toward God, doing what they themselves wanted to do, serving themselves, allowing idols to creep into their lives and even into their worship. The hard service of the people of God had been or would be or would have been that entire couple of hundred years during which the people of God were divided and then the collapse of the northern kingdom from, with this invading army, the collapse of the southern kingdom, and seemingly all hope gone. And then those 50 years, or some would say 70, Jeremiah would say, of exile during which an entire generation was born and died. This was her hard service that resulted from her sin. But then suddenly miraculously, almost without notice, without explanation, and certainly by the grace of God, her sin was paid for. And she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins, which to our ears, accustomed to grace, or gracelessness rather, sounds like payback. That she's getting what she deserves. For your sin you will be repaid or punished with double the amount of pain, suffering, grief, judgment, justice. But the clear meaning of Isaiah's words here in Hebrew, grammar and context, is that she, Israel, will get back or will be given much more double. 
what she deserves, much more than what she deserves, better than what she deserves. We call this grace. And it was coming Israel's way and has come their way because the king was coming. Those two go straight together. The change happens because this new king was coming. A different kind of king was coming. Prepare ye the way. Verse 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all the people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And this is about red carpets being rolled out. I remember in San Antonio one time, George H.W. Bush was coming to town, and they literally repaved Broadway between the airport and downtown for his entourage, for his limousines, for the Secret Service SUVs. They literally repaved the road. That's what's going on here. Prepare ye the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. They're going to smooth it out. The rough ground will become level. The rugged places a plain. A highway for our God. This king is going to be different than every other king before because he won't simply be human, but somehow also God. And through this king's coming or arrival or advent, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people would see it together. Other than New Year's Day celebrations, the most celebrated holiday in the world, over the entire world, Asia, the Muslim world, the West, the East, the North, the South, the most celebrated holiday day in the world today is Christmas, Christmas. And the glory of the Lord would be revealed and all people would see it together. Are you with me? And so we should not be surprised that this prophecy in many ways has come true. And we should not be surprised all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, quote these words from the beginning of Isaiah. Rarely in the Gospels do all four of the Gospels, all four of the Gospel writers Rarely do they all quote the same scripture, say the same thing, tell the same story, make reference to the same event. But all four of them here quote the same Old Testament scripture and all describe John the Baptist and his forerunner of Jesus' ministry with these words from Isaiah 43 and 4. And as they do, they were affirming what this new king would be about, comforting God's people who were in anguish, freeing them from their anguish, putting an end to their suffering, liberating them from the punishment that was rightly theirs, taking away their sin, forgiving their sin, and instead of justice, giving them mercy, the mercy for which Israel had waited for 700 years, 500 years, 400 years of darkness before Jesus shows up, and for whom many of them still wait. If a person lives apart from comfort, this idea of comfort, in other words, in relief from suffering, in freedom from condemnation, in mercy and forgiveness, the discomfort 
can be unbearable. But conversely, in the comfort of the Lord and the grace of God in Jesus, there is peace. A peace that we can't find anywhere else. A peace that isn't out there in the world. A peace the world doesn't offer. A peace that a world entangled and enmeshed and anchored down by or sucked down by sin cannot offer. Much different and worse than our simple waiting in the checkout line at Target or on hold for a tech support representative, the Jews waited and waited and waited and waited, hoping but not knowing if they would ever be free, liberated, redeemed, forgiven, healed. And then 2,000 years ago, the king arrives. The king arrives and many received him. Many believed in his name and were forgiven, received his mercy, received his spirit received his peace, received new life. Today we wait not for his mercy, but for his coming again to restore all things. Still in a sin-tangled world that has been forgiven and is no longer victorious, has been in one sense defeated in and by Jesus on the cross. And yet we still wait for the consummation of all things, aware of our own sin, G.K. Chesterton said, the one point on which of Christian theology on which all people, including atheists, can agree is original sin and the pervasiveness of it. And we still see it, we still live in it, we still are it, forgiven and waiting, waiting, waiting for the consummation of all things, for a world in which sin will literally be no more, the end of sin Christ on his throne. Imagine your life sin-free from the inside out or from the outside in. The season of Advent, as uh, these words on the front of our bulletin state, the season of Advent means there's something on the horizon, the likes of which we have never seen before. What is possible is to not see it, to miss it, to turn just as it brushes past you and to begin to grasp, and you begin to grasp what it was you missed, like Moses in the cleft of the rock, watching God's back fade in the distance. So stay, the author writes, sit, linger, tarry, ponder, wait, behold, wonder. There will be time enough for running, for rushing, for worrying, for pushing, for now stay, wait. Something is still on the horizon. And as another author has written, Tish Harrison, up on the screen, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache. Our deep wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness. Advent holds space for our grief And it reminds us that all of us, in one way or another, are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing our our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. But as we wait, as we watch, as we endure this unendurable, countercultural advent, we do so with hope that the King who has come is coming again. He will bring heaven to earth and everything will be changed. We will be restored. Sin will not only be forgiven, but it will be put away. And the glory of the Lord will be seen by all people. Thanks be to God.
Let's pray. We confess, God, our impatience. We want things now. We want things to be different now. We want to be changed now. We want you to arrive again victoriously now, today, not tomorrow. We want the wars to end, the corruption to be over, the fights, the violence, the division to be healed. And so we wait and we wait with hope. We wait in your mercy. We wait having been forgiven. And we call out to you to come, Lord Jesus. Bring it about. Bring down your kingdom from heaven to earth. We pray these things in Christ the Lord. Amen.